Hey everyone, we hope you're having a great week. My name is Eric Johnson, and along with my wife Candace, we are the lead pastors of Studio. We are based in Greenville, South Carolina, and we just want to take a moment and say hello and say thanks for listening to this podcast. So with that, let's get right to it. Thank you, Rahiva. There's <laughs> a lot going on around Studio. We got to make sure y'all in the know. How's everybody doing? I'm excited to be here on Pentecost Sunday. This is practically our birthday, y'all. This is like the church's birthday. When the church received the spirit of God from on high that marked them that says, you are my people. You have the spirit of God living inside you. Some of y'all looking so blank-faced like it's just an ordinary Sunday. It's a day of jubilee. It's a day of celebration. I am thrilled to talk to you about what we're going to discuss today because this is what God's been doing in me for probably the past year and a half. And Eric has cracked open so much connected to the will of God that I want to just kind of move in that vein as well. The will of God, it's such a mystery, right? I just say it, the will of God. And most people are like, if you've been in church for a long time, you just kind of go to that phrase, the will of God. It sounds like some epic King James phrase or whatever. If you're new to the faith, you're like, the will of God, how can I even know what that is? That's a good question. I think, to be honest, anybody that's a disciple of Jesus should keep that freshness in our hearts, asking, how can we really know what that is? Disciples are learners, students who ask questions. When I look at the actual physical disciples with Jesus, they asked a lot of questions. Are you asking questions? Are you asking God questions? I was that one raised in the South in Oklahoma. Some people are like, Oklahoma's the South? Yes, Oklahoma is the South. Ain't nothing Midwest about Oklahoma if you've ever been. (laughs) But while I was being raised, I had this thought that you could not ask God questions because we had this statement, don't question God. Anybody heard that phrase? Like, don't question God. And you would would attribute that to that means I can't be curious. I I can't ask questions because I'm that kid that's riding in the back of the car going, what's that? And where's this? And what do you mean by this, mom? And what's that over there, dad? And when are we going to get there? You mean the God of the cosmos who knows everything I can't ask him? He loves being asked questions. He loves even hiding things for us to be able to find them. And I think the will of God is one of those places where he invites us to ask questions. I don't think there's an arrival point when it comes to the will I think it's just this adventure, this discovery. I want to read what was read earlier about Pentecost Sunday because this is sort of the framework that I want to kind of talk about the will of God. Acts 1 verse 6 through 8 says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Aren't y'all happy to know we've received power? (laughs) Like this is not a powerless gospel, y'all. It ain't a wimpy gospel. It ain't something where we sit back and twiddle our thumbs and go, well, here's a few great quotes that you can kind of throw in a little, um, you know, Chinese fortune cookie. Like, no, it's got power and demonstration and glory and goodness that can be touched and felt and seen, not just in your day, but it reverberates throughout the generations. This is the God we serve and the good news he's given us. There's an old song when I was growing up. My mom used to sing it in church. 
anointing fall on me, anointing fall on me. Merrily, you know it. Let the power of the Holy Ghost fall on me, anointing fall on me. See, the Holy Spirit is within you, but he can also come upon you with power to do his will. But if we don't know what that is, then what are we doing with this power? We're just like walking around like the Hulk, just and nothing to aim it at. We gotta be curious and ask questions so that we know where we can aim this power. In this scripture, it talks about, it, well, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. Well, that's a powerful word. We think about court systems and witnesses in a court system. That means they saw something and they need to tell it. Right? They saw something and they need to tell it. The truth needs to be heralded. We are witnesses of Jesus, witnesses of God. His work and his will has something to do with witnessing. But if we're stuck in a space where we're not even asking questions and feel like we can't, ah, how will we ever unpack the layers and levels to this mystery? I want to address something that ends up making this such a challenge in the Western world. It's our hunger and desire for epic. It's so, it's like a phenomenon because we live in such a blessed country, right? But Jesus didn't have a Western lens when he was giving us these words. He didn't come from a Western construct when he was forming the good news. He didn't move in a Western flair or flow when he was demonstrating to his disciples what it looked like for the kingdom to come. But for us, we woke up in Western culture. That's our air that we breathe, right? We like fish, it's the water that's all around us. For most of us that have not lived or visited other countries, it's all we know. So it becomes our little focals, our little bifocals or lenses through which we look at the gospel and through which we interpret the gospel. So everything we want to do for Jesus, for God, for his will, it's gotta be epic, because America, big. Man, I went to IHOP a couple weeks ago, and I said, I ain't been to IHOP in a long time, but IHOP has been upgrading their portion sizes. I said, this is a lot of food. This isn't just take it home and have seconds. This is take it home, have seconds and thirds, and feed my neighbor. It was a lot of food, cause America. Big, 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 epic, epic, epic. So when I do something for Jesus, go hard or go home. Do it big. It's just, it's crazy because I don't think that's what Jesus meant. I look at people like Mother Teresa who lived an epic life. She touched so many people. 
so many impoverished people, so many people that had so many afflictions and, and, and places where they need deliverance. And she impacted not just the thousands, but the hundreds of thousands. And then those who were witness to her work, how it transformed them. I look at people like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the, the level of love that he poured out that shifted an entire nation where his name is still on our lips as an example of how to move redemptively in the face of chaos, affliction, and bondage, and brutality, right? He lived an epic life. And then I look at people like John G. Lake, an incredible healing revivalist who just not only moved in crazy healings in times of, of famine and, and, and plagues, but also he empowered other people to move in healing gifts. And what's crazy is they lived epic lives, but that wasn't actually their goal. Their goal was service. Service. It was not so tangled or complicated. It was just give. It was just love. It was just serve. So the question is like, when did it become so complicated and tangled? Because I think in, in this space, even with what Adam was talking about with dreams that God is reigniting in many of our hearts, I think there's a paralysis that's come over the body of Christ because we're stuck in perfectionism. We're stuck in the perfectionism that comes with epic, 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 right? Like somebody who wants to have a fun little movie night. Oh, I'm going to make chicken wings and have some ranch dressing. I'm going to invite about seven or eight of my friends. Okay, and then I'm about to send the text. Oh, wait, no, I'm going to do a photo booth too. We can have my little, you know, one of those like instant photo cameras. Oh, that's going to be great. Okay. And then, oh, wait, no, I want to make sure I invite my neighbors too because we got to be loving to our neighbors. And, oh, I want to do that whole new karaoke thing. And next thing you know, the $57 budget event that you had planned for seven or eight of your friends just turned into a $3,057 event. And you now have to postpone it to raise funds for this epic thing. <laughs> that did not start off so epic. It really started off as an idea for connection. But now you're tangled and it's gotta be big, baby. Go hard or go home. Cause did it count if it wasn't big? Was it enough if it wasn't big? It's hard to understand the will of God when we don't understand God's heart and his desires and the greatest place that you could see this is at origin point, design, Genesis. God of the cosmos in the very beginning created everything and formed everything from this beautiful image, picture, and texture of oneness. Adam and Eve woke up their first day of living and breathing and they experienced God in connection with them and God through them and connection with each other, connection with themselves, connection with the land, connection with eternity. Everything was formed for a sharing of oneness, for God's pleasure and even for us to enjoy it. And then there's this pesky little thing called choice <laughs> where they made a different decision to do a different thing that was not his kingdom. It was a different vision. So now you've got God's vision. You've got their vision. Instead of one vision, now you have division, two visions. And it broke off from the oneness. But what was God's original desire? Oneness. In fact, the, the, the statement that God says to them or the question he asks once they sinned was not a behavioral question. He said, where are you? It was a positional question because they were fashioned and formed in oneness. They used to be right here, connected to me. But where are you? 
I'd like to think that God's will in 2023 is very similar to God's will in 1943, is very similar to God's will in 1692, very similar to 832, 14 AD, 14 BC. It's oneness. There's no plan B, y'all. Plan A is it. He's so brilliant with how he plans things that he's like, don't worry, boo. I got you. Y'all going to screw this all the way up. But I'm going to go ahead and crucify Christ before the foundations of the earth were formed, including you, before you were formed, so that the redemptive plan will be in motion that when you mess up, it is already activated to bring you back to me. That's how much he wants this thing. That is his will. But man, here we go. We postponed that will because we ain't got enough budget because we have made it so big. Can't it be simple? I started asking these questions just to be vulnerable because I, I was formed when God told me at 17 years old, they're waiting for you to tell stories. I used to want to be a dentist. And he said, they're waiting for you to tell stories. So I left my little dentistry path and went to acting school and I began to be formed in the entertainment industry where everything about entertainment, baby, is big, epic, famous, red carpets. Like, how, how can you be famous? That is everything there. And then I was just trying to reconcile in my heart, well, how do I just do it for God? The problem is it's the wrong ecosystem. How do I be famous for God? It's the wrong heart posture. It's the wrong aim. It's it's, it's the wrong path. It's, it's, it's not the same ethos as Jesus who says, I, I come not seeking to be served, but I seek to serve. I wonder if we got in bed with some of the things that have formed us in America, and then we're trying to go, bring this over to the kingdom. Except they don't blend. They don't mix. It's a scary thought because some of us are probably going, then what do I do with my dreams? Ah, hang on to that. I'm going to read a few passages um, from some books, um, specifically this book called To Hell with the Hustle by Jefferson Bethke, because he's been somebody that I love, has been wrestling with this particular concept in our country of being overworked, overspent, and being an overconnected world, and what that looks like when we try to live out a life for the king of kings, who has a very different culture than American culture. And one of the things that I've been wrestling with is even this concept of goals, Goals, right? Y'all yeah, know that word very well. We, we, I'm a life coach, so I'm always talking about goals with people. Goals. I made a few goals even this morning for what I want to do this week. Goals is a big part of how we live our life. But I just want to paint some pictures about what has formed us in our American day that sometimes tangles us when it comes to living out a life for Jesus. The term goals was virtually non-existent before 1920. Isn't that crazy? 1920, how many generations of believers have been living without that word? 
The term goals was virtually non-existent before 1920. On a graph, looking at any mention of the word in all of literature across the board, it's pretty much a flat line until 1920, when it started to uptick and has continued to shoot up and to the right for the past 90 to 100 years. Yet generations before us built countries without goal setting. Electricity and the light bulb were invented without bullet journals. New modes of transportation like the locomotive train and the cross-country tracks that allowed unheard of travel across the new frontier were created without New Year's revolutions, resolutions. Excuse me. It makes me feel bad for Alexander Hamilton or, Mort or Mozart if only they would have known about goal setting. It's hilarious. I've been doing a lot of research on the first century church, the early church, and I've just been thinking... What did they do with the word goals or that concept? How did they relate to the concept of scalable purpose? Potential, was that something on their lips? I think it's very American, but I don't know if it's very kingdom. Is it bad? <sighs> no, but it's what formed us which then is what sometimes tangles us when we try to live a life for the king. I want to read this other portion of his book that breaks down a moment that changed everything for America. The gentleman's name was Henry Ford. His invention was the revolutionary Model T. And October 7th, 1913, was the first official day of the moving assembly line. Anybody ever heard about the assembly line? This is where instead of everybody doing every single thing, one person does one thing and they pass it down the line and then you do the next thing and they pass it down the line and then you do the next thing and it created explosive levels of efficiency. To say Ford's vision of the automobile and the assembly line model changed the world is an understatement. It didn't just change the world. It changed how we see the world, how we engage the world, how we understand the world. Prior to Ford's invention, most people were confined to the few dozen miles around their villages and neighborhoods. The early church was confined to their villages and their neighborhoods. Now we are so global in our view, we literally are going, like filling our hearts with so much pressure to change the world instead of actually just touching our villages and our neighborhoods. Here's the truth. The assembly line isn't just something we did. It was something done to us. We are assembly line creatures. If hustle needed a birth date, I'd say it was the day the assembly line was born. It made efficiency a God. It made time a God. It created the ultimate pursuit of profit over everything. It gave us the operating principle of giving the least amount of energy for the highest return. Today, even our salvation model or our personal development model or business model is essentially replicating that day in 1913 over and over and over again. And I'm not saying the assembly line built car is evil either. The car is incredible. What I am saying is there are always trade-offs, concessions, ramifications, changes. Have we even thought about these? Are we okay with them? Sometimes we don't even need to change anything to find a better path. Just being aware of how things are shaping us is enough to affect us. I really feel like God wants to break off the paralysis. 
the paralysis that has come because we've been formed in this desire for epic. And so it's created a mindset of inadequacy inside of us. I'm not enough if I don't do this. It's not enough for God if I don't do it this way. So now we're stuck in a not enoughness when God said, let there be. That was the, the, the pure vision and picture of your enoughness. Let there be a Jess. It came with enough packaged in it. Let there be a Sara. It came with enough packaged in it. There's nothing you could do to make yourself more enough than you already are. What if we took the pressure off? Didn't have to live for epic. These dreams, what if they don't have to actually change the world? What if they were just enough to love the world around me? There's enough stories in history to know that that was more than enough. Those who didn't realize the next generation would be speaking their name just loved those around them. These things that have formed us place a pressure on us to perform at a high level for God instead of living with God. Remember, it's Pentecost Sunday. The power that he gave us wasn't just a tangible gift that you put in your hand and look at. It was his very self. It's him. He's like, don't do it for me. Do it with me. How much fun would that be? Then all of a sudden now we're literally walking around what I would call open Eden, open heaven. His original design happening right now through me. The oneness that he wanted from the very beginning. Well, I'm reconciled to the Father now, so that oneness can now happen through me. I'm doing everything with God. And God's like, you're my dream come true. The pressure's coming off. I, I strongly believe that the Lord is not returning to find CEOs building huge, big businesses for him. Although some of y'all might have a grace on your life to do that. But he's not looking for CEOs and organizations. He's looking for an organism and a bride. He's returning as a father to find sons and daughters with his heart. When I hear this, and, and as I've been wrestling with this with the Lord, it has brought me so much peace, y'all. Because that means I can let it go. All that empty ambition all that need for it to be epic and then constant feeling like I'm a failure in the kingdom. I can let it go and just be his and focus on living with him, looking like him, and giving like him. I want to read some scripture. <laughs> We're going to go to Matthew 25. Verse 14. We're going to read about the parable of the talents. This passage, I used to live my life by this parable, okay? This parable, when I say if there was anyone that would, would measure up my mission in life, it was this one. And then the Lord told me, I need you to put it down because you are in wrong relationship with it. I was like, man, what, man? God. Because I wanted him to be able to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And he said, but you need to learn, here's my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. 
and then we'll pick this back up. And it's just been the past year and a half that he's allowed me to pick it back up. And so I invite you as we read through this, I want you to look at this through the lens of sonship and daughterhood and through the lens of the will of God, okay? Let's just see what he has for us. Now, parables, when Jesus would tell parables, it was these stories where he hid truth within them. But I like to think about the way he hides truth is not like someone who literally wants to hide something from you. He's hiding it for you, like an Easter egg hunt, okay? I don't know a sick, sadistic parent that would be like, ha, 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 you can't find any of those eggs because I hid them in, you know, Timbuktu. Like, no, they literally are eagerly waiting for them to find it just standing in front of them. They love that. It brings them great delight. Where did that come from, though? We're made in his image. So that same delight that's in your heart as a parent or an auntie or an uncle that's looking at someone look for something, that's the delight that comes from the Father. He's hidden these things for us to find And he wants his curious disciples to ask the questions and to be seekers to find it. So we're going to read starting at verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey. This it is the kingdom. So the disciples in this moment were having conversations with Jesus about the end times. How will we know when it's time, when when the development of your plan has come to full fruition? And Jesus is trying to let them know, you ain't going to know the hour, okay? Right before this parable, there was another parable about, about the ten virgins and how it came upon them and snuck upon them at the last second. And this is reminiscent in that particular space, but he's got multiple things layered in this. And so just know that it is the kingdom of God. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made, his, uh, made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, uh, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, uh, for to everyone who has, will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's a lot here. So juicy now that I can look back at it. Thank you, God. A few things we see here. Who are the people in this story? There's a master, there are three servants. 
servant actually translates to slave, okay? Now, in Jesus' day, he's telling stories about masters and slaves. Their cultural context was they knew slavery to look like at least three different ways. There were people that were born into slavery, like their family was actually owned, and so the children that they had were also slaves. But then there was also a type of slavery called indentured servitude. So if you owed a specific debt, you could then lend yourself as a hired hand, but it's to pay off your debt, and when the debt is done, you are no longer a slave. And then there was also this concept of those that absolutely didn't have anything. They were homeless. They would, they would give themselves as a slave to someone just to have provision, to have roof over their head, to have food, um, to, to uh, no longer be homeless. Now, what's interesting, though, is in a master-slave relationship, you normally don't have the master giving the slave the money. So there's something interesting here. Again, curious, being a curious disciple, this is me asking God, what was going on between the master and the slave? Well, some of the slaves back in the day, they would be hired because they had specific skills. Um, many of the, the, the slaves um, were oftentimes more skilled than even their owners. They had different levels of, of I don't know if they were um, blacksmiths or they, they did different things. They had trades and goods and things that they did. And, and oftentimes, too, the master was able to train up their slaves to learn specific skills. In this particular context, I think it's incredible that the master gives something to these slaves. Remember, it's Pentecost Sunday. The master has given his spirit to us. And it's no mystery. The master is Jesus in this particular context. But we need to understand the relationship here. There's trust. Like the master entrusted his very own possessions, his money to these slaves, to these servants. He gave. But what's interesting to me is he didn't give them any instructions. He didn't give any of them a blueprint. He gave them a command. Uh, some translation says, go and occupy until I return. And that word occupy in the Greek actually means to do business. But he didn't tell them what kind of business. This is what I would love to propose to you about God's will. He loves your creativity when it comes to his will. Some of us are in paralysis because we're waiting for a line by line breakdown of how God wants us to do this thing. And God's like, man, but when we do it with each other, I even love your creativity, your ideas, because I've given you something. So what you going to do with it? I've given you something. How are you going to take the two and make four? That's just doubling it. Take the five and make 10. That's just doubling it. Your creativity is a part of God's equation with his will. But it makes sense, right? Because he's the creator and we are made in the image of the creator. Therefore, we are creative beings. So creativity has got to be a part of it. Freedom looks like creating, not waiting in this space of paralysis, either from perfectionism or from this space of believing that God is going to open up the heavens and go, thus saith the Lord, I want you now to go ye therefore into all the land. It ain't going to be that specific which means it's gonna require us to know us as God's created beings. I give you permission to learn yourself. To learn who you are as one of God's created beings. You can't steward what you don't know is there. 
You can't multiply what you don't know you have. Now, that's not the same as the world trying to say, I'm at the center of my universe. No, it's, the, it's, the, it's different. It's saying, he is the center of my universe, and he said, let there be, and said it was good. So I'm going to learn what the it was so I can say amen. It is so. Our lives should be the amen to God's let there be. To God's statement of it is good. Here's some of my favorite quotes on creativity by Erwin McManus. Our studio homes have been going through his book called Artisan Soul. It's an incredible book. I would, I would say grab it, read it, digest it, think on it. It is a very different type of structure. If you're used to linear type thinking, he is a very abstract thinker, but he will help you expand within your curiosity as a disciple. Here's one of his statements. When we are freed from the rules and regulations that are so often imposed on us in the name of God, we discover that creativity is the natural result of spirituality. And if this is true, then our soul is the primary material for all artistic expression. Whew. That's good. Some of us just haven't received that permission to create. We've only received the permission to obey. Obey. This is what Eric was talking about last week. Obey. That is in the realm of servant and slave. But God wants to elevate you from servant, slave to friend. Friends get to create. Then you move from friend to son, daughter. Sons and daughters don't just get to create. They get the authority of their father. So you can... Live in the realm of obedience, but how about we also graduate to creativity and then operate in authority to see God's kingdom come? Here's another statement. Within the universe's intention and its unique design around relationship, mm, oneness, we find that the focal point of the universe, the motive of the universe is love. God created life so that we could know love. Everything God does is an expression of his love. It is neither trite nor superficial that the scriptures summarize this in three simple words. God is love. It is critical to understand this because if we are to reclaim our role in the creative process and express our lives as masterful works of art, we too must be sure that our motivation is the expansion of love. Not epic. Of love. He also says, to create is to reflect the image of God. To create is an act of worship. <sighs> I just get this image in my mind of God sitting up there waiting to receive all those dreams that you're carrying and the creativity that's going to come with that. And he's just going to be like, yes, it's amazing. I'm going to put that on my refrigerator. That's what kind of daddy is. He loves it when you create, especially when your heart is connected to his heart to expand love. When I look at that and I look back at this parable of the talents, we know that the one that was called wicked, he squandered his portion. He took a talent, which was currency, money, and he didn't do anything with it. He tucked it away, he hid it, and he was called wicked for the squandering. This is where I've been sitting, though, in, 
in my thoughts with this. Now, the jury's still out, I'm still researching this, but this is what I would like to propose through my imagination. I wonder if he was not called wicked just because he squandered the money, but he was called wicked because he did not want to replicate his master. He was communicating by his, his not taking the talent. That's not just him not taking the talent, it's him also not taking all the lessons, all the time spent forming him and building trust with him, all the, the, the ways that he was crafting and being formed in a specific skill or trade and, and then saying, I'm not even gonna do anything with that. It's not worth seeing happen again and again and again in the world. It's not worthy of replication. Because to create is to operate in the image of God. It's worship. So when you create as an image bearer, you replicate him. And he said, I'll create nothing. I wonder if that's why he was called wicked. So then I look at our opportunity today. And sometimes our, our hearts aren't that we just go, Puh, you're not worthy of being replicated, but we get tangled. We get tangled in this desire for epic or this, this false mindset of we're not enough and we get paralyzed and we hesitate and we build big ideas in our minds to it's so big and so overwhelming that we procrastinate and do nothing. And we don't replicate our father. Only thing is the master's gonna return. He's gonna be like, what you doing with what I gave you? And for some of us in here, he's given you a lot. And it's not even about how much you've been given. It's that you do something with what you've been given. My mom, her name is Tina, but I call her Tinta. I didn't call her that when I was a kid. When I went to drama school, I got a little weird and just started giving people names. <laughs> so I started calling her Tinta. But when I was young, my mom, she lives this so well. And I didn't realize how much I got it absorbed into me from her example. But when she was a, a middle school English teacher, she got this creative idea to lift the countenance of these young black girls at this school by starting a cheer squad. Only problem was, she didn't know any cheerleading. I said, Mom, what you gonna do with a cheer squad? You don't know cheerleading. She goes, I know, but you do. And I said, oh, <laughs> dang, um, yeah, you're right, I do. There's this thing in families that are really huge on service. You get voluntold to do things. There's no such thing as volunteering. You are voluntold. Anybody know that feeling? Reva know. Your whole career has been built on. <laughs> voluntold. So I was voluntold to be the cheer coach. But what I didn't realize was going to be something that changed my life for the next 10 years. Because we used creativity with stunting and cheers and to create moments of connection, sleepovers and conversations about God and his love and helping them understand their worth and value and how to take care of their hair and how to say no to that little boy over there that don't know your worth and value and how to do time management and all the things that they did not receive because many of them were in poverty. The kingdom came near through this simple, creative idea to serve. We did not wait to have some huge budget. We said, God, you're going to do what you're going to do. And we worked with what we had so that the kingdom could come near. There's another um, fun story that, that inspires me so much because I just love when the kids move in this. One of my friends named David Neronia back in Redding, California, uh, one of the founders of Bethel Conservatory of the Arts. One of his kids, his son, 
he had this idea when he was a preteen. He wanted to give a bunch of Bibles to the homeless. But the only problem was he didn't really have any money. So he decided, ding to create an idea to plan a special run, a little race around um, the, the lower area of the Bethel area to raise funds to give to Bible, to give Bibles to the homeless. What was crazy is he thought, maybe I could get 20 Bibles. Then he like retracted and said, maybe 15. We'll do 15. 15 feels more doable. God showed up and showed out, blessed the creative idea. They raised over $1,000 and they were able to give almost 100 Bibles to the homeless. And I look at that and I go, it's that simple, isn't it, God? Meanwhile, I'm over here planning the movie night, <laughs> and I'm still stuck on my $3,000 budget. And it could just look like a creative idea, a heart that looks like the Father, my will aligned with his will, and I say yes, and I just go. The only reason why they could go is because they weren't married to Epic. They were willing, willing for it to look like obscurity, for it to look like, like humility. They were willing to go low. What would we have to abandon to get this simplicity? We would need to abandon our need to conquer in order to feel powerful. It's a hard one in America. We have been formed in a colonialistic um, uh, modality of thinking. This was the 13 colonies that became the states. And so it's seeped everywhere. We don't actually realize it because it's the air we breathe. As fish, it's the water we swim in. So everything is about be on top, America first. And there's this conquering thing. We even sometimes create theologies about how to get to the top of the mountain so that we can rule from there for God. But Jesus, remember he seeks not to be served, but to serve. He seeks not to control and conquer, but to love and even wash feet. We would need to abandon our need for highly visible in order to feel validated. We would need to abandon our need for speed in order to feel impactful. We would need to abandon our need for epic in order to feel significant. But this is how the kingdom actually works, y'all. It's upside down. We lose to gain. We die to live. I wonder if the pathway to being epic in God's kingdom is actually going low. Doing it simple. And dare I even say by today's definition, doing it boring. I want to actually read one last statement from a Jefferson Bethke on boring. <laughs> this is one of my favorites. He said, a hundred years ago, people might have thought if their crops weren't growing well, they were cursed, or if their marriage fell apart, or if a huge sickness hit them. But for our generation, our curse is much different. It's having to be ordinary. Take the phrase, living your best life. I've personally stopped using that phrase entirely along with all the other cousins of it. Be more productive, be the best you, scale your influence, chase your dreams, and things like that. I've exchanged it for something that's been a lot more life-giving, and it's pretty simple. My new life mantra is, be boring. Seriously, I have it written as a reminder right next to my computer because what our culture defines as boring or mediocre or wasteful squandering of talent the scriptures and the way of Jesus define as quiet, 
beautiful, faithful. And here's where I've had to grapple with this the most. When thinking about our Christian culture and its obsession with doing big things for God, what if God doesn't want me to do big things for him? Like, at all? What if he just wants me to talk to him and know him and live an ordinary life where I love him and my neighbors well? You might just fool around and be enough. Jesus expounds on the business of the kingdom in verse 31 through 40 after the parable of the talents. I'm going to read a bit of this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. It's so interesting how the very culture of the kingdom that God wants to see as the business that we replicate of his father on this land is connected to the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned. All of this smells like reconciliation. All of this feels like God's original dream, oneness. And who get to be those dream bearers? Who gets to be the ones carrying the kingdom on their shoulders the same way Jesus carried it on his shoulders? It's us. 2 Corinthians 5 talks about us being the ministers of reconciliation, meaning our dreams and his dreams must be one and connected to his ultimate dream, which is oneness. What if we just let the pressure fall off of our need for epic and started getting into the simple? What if we connected our dreams with being with the sick and the lonely? What if we connected our, our passions, our dreams, our desires, and everything that God's given us to see the will of God come, this is the will he's articulating. That the very culture of the kingdom that looks like belonging, that looks like family, that looks like oneness, that looks like care and covering, that you be the vehicle that makes that known in the land. We are the vessels. Christ was called the light of the world. And then as he was piecing out, he said, guess what? You're the light of the world. And how did he shine his light? Replicating his father. How are we to shine our light? Replicating our father. I'm about to close. See, the enemy wants us paralyzed in perfectionism and not serving in simplicity. One thing that's really 
clear to me in this scripture is when the master returned, he caught them in motion, not in paralysis. He caught them in movement, not in paralysis. He caught them creating, not in paralysis. The enemy wants us paralyzed with perfectionism or through small thinking about who we are. But what happens if we just embrace how royal we are in the kingdom and we replicate our king? Be caught in movement when the master returns. Movement that's fueled by humility and service. I'll tell a quick story and then we're out of here. George Washington Carver is one of my black history heroes. He was a man that was born in slavery in the 1860s, just before the Civil War and before um, slavery was abolished. And as a young boy, he was incredibly curious. He was always looking at plants going, why does this rose grow like this? And why does that rose grow like that? And what's that weed over there? And his brain just wanted to know how nature worked. He became extremely successful in spite of Jim Crow laws, in spite of racism at that time, because he was not even allowed to go to universities. Um, and when he finally was able to go into a university, he became the first African-American to receive a bachelor's um, degree. Um, and I believe it was in botany um, and sciences. And then he also got a master's degree, became one of the greatest scientists to, to bless America and the world beyond. The crazy thing about his success is he discovered like more than 300 different inventions and uses for peanuts and hundreds more uses for soybeans, pecans, sweet potatoes. But what's cool about him is he attributed his greatest success to be his wagon on wheels. It was called the Jessup wagon. And while he was learning all these different advances, what he discovered was uh, in the South, cotton was king. The crop down here was mainly producing cotton, but the thing about cotton is it takes so much from the soil. So people's farms were dying because they were wanting to produce the, the king crop, but it was killing their soil and they didn't know why. He was finding this out while he was working at Tuskegee Institute and he was, I mean, groundbreaking in this area and many wanted him to go and be prolific and this speaker and this, 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 this person that would take these advances into technology. And he said, actually... I can't get the poor farmer out of my mind. And he left the pathway of what man would call major success, and he created this little Jessup wagon to go from farm to farm to teach them about these new elements that he's learned about the soil. I want to read, um, for those that need, that want to share black history stories with their kids, this is a great book, Heroes in Black History. I love this one. But I just want to read a quick little quote because this is how they reacted to him and this man of God responds back. Some of Carver's students were doubtful of the school on wheels. That's no way to make money, giving away free advice. Carver's eyes flashed fire. I'm not here to contribute to your own gain, he said, but to help you lead your people forward. That will be the mark of your success, not the style of clothes you wear, nor the amount of money you put in the bank. It is only service that counts. He became known as the man who saved the South from poverty because his advancements and his teachings and trainings to all of the poor farmers ended up re-enriching the soil and brought everyone out of ruin and into wealth. He taught them how to yield a higher crop. He chose simple, 
He chose to draw near to the poor. He chose to use what God had given him, and he used creativity to bless, to pour in, and to even connect them to God's original design. He didn't choose epic, but here's what's interesting. God made him epic. Some of us, it's just a little heart shift. You live for God, he will be the one that will make your name great. You serve the Lord in simplicity, even when it feels like obscurity, it's him that will elevate you. This man ended up changing so much and impacting us in so, much, so many ways. That I'm, I'm sure us living here right now in the South, we don't even realize the ripple effect it has had on us to receive the benefits of his service. Go ahead and stand. Jesus is the master. He has given us unique talents, gifts, abilities, desires, dreams, and even his very own spirit. Come on, it's Pentecost Sunday. The most important goal is to look like him and build God's kingdom like him. But the kingdom business is simple. Take the pressure off and get creative, aiming love at people, pushing back darkness, and replicating the Father on earth. I was joking with a, somebody that was at the 4 o'clock service, and I said, ooh, we need to kiss. Keep it simple, saints. Because the Lord wants us out of paralysis and into his will, his will for our lives, which looks like being in oneness, releasing oneness, in our families, in our neighborhoods, on the job. He doesn't want your shoulders so heavy with this feeling of I'm not enough. He wants you to know you've already been enough. The breath in you is the stamp of your enoughness. So what are you gonna do with it? Go ahead and put your hands on your heart. I'm going to read a poem over years. You can close your eyes if you want to. Do you feel that? Do you feel his wind coming in hot, coming in steady? Are you ready to let this wind rearrange you, sustain you, pick up your worries, your confusion, your stain and your strain and set you down on solid rock, hard rock, strong enough to stand on, sturdy enough to run on, create on, move on, be caught moving. Be caught moving. His wind is what you need to get you moving. Let his wind sweep away the pressures. Blow away the perfect little pictures you painted in your head called destiny. There is no arriving at a destination. For where does wind end? Does it not sweep back and get ready to blow again and again and again? Eyes on eternity. Feet to the earth. Let's be caught creating when the master returns. God, I thank you for who you are and even what this day represents. The day you gave us the greatest gift you could ever give us, your spirit, that you would lead and guide us into all truth. And I pray, God, for our generation dealing with the unique tangles and complications that we have in our day. You already knew we would be here, so give us the wisdom for our day. Equip us for our day. 
Teach us how to connect with your spirit in our day for what's needed in our day. And I pray, God, right now that the truth of your word that says where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, that people in this room would feel fresh freedom. Freedom to be, freedom to create, freedom to use what they have to come close to the vulnerable, to expand your kingdom, to release your culture as a God who's a father who's always wanted a family. We love you, Lord. We give you our lives. We give you our breath. We give you this moment. Inhabit our praise. Be with us even as we leave. Inspire us, God. The same way you inspired written word, inspire our creative ideas that would not just impact our lives, but those around us, God. And then if you should choose to make it epic, that's your business. And we will give you all the glory, honor, and praise. And if you should choose to just keep it as a simple seed for the person next to me, I pray, God, that it goes deep within them and that they know your love and that I know that I love well and that that is enough. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope this talk benefits you in every way possible. For more information about Studio, you can go to studiogreenville.com or go to Instagram and look for studio.greenville. We would also love it if you would leave a review and hit those five stars. Other than that, have a great week, and we'll see you soon.